1: Welcome to the Business Edge, giving practical advice to entrepreneurs and business leaders on how to take your company, firm, or practice to that next level with less stress and more success. In other words, how to take the growing pains out of growth. I'm Marcia Zeidel, your Smart Moves Coach, getting you on the right track, keeping you on the right track, and making sure you don't get sidetracked in your drive for purpose, performance, and profitability. Now, a quick Smart Moves treat.
0: It's time for Marsha's Musings, a tasty morsel of wisdom and wit to take the growing pains out of growth.
1: Change. Ch- change. Is it happening in your workplace? There's been lots of change. Mor- morale is low and everyone is stressed out. You as the manager know you need to do something, anything, but don't know exactly what. You came up with an idea. Bring in a motivational speaker to rouse your folks, or better yet, send them to a motivational rally where they can get pumped up. I was recently contacted by such a manager and asked if I do motivational speaking. I answered that I'm a business speaker on workplace and leadership issues. I do programs that inform, inspire, and involve the audience in developing positive ways to improve their situation. Do they feel better? Perhaps. But what I'm striving for is not people feeling better, but people thinking and doing things differently. So, what is the best way to deal with many of the major issues in today's business environment, whether it's employee engagement or continuous change or working smarter? Celebrate, says Terry Deal in his book, Corporate Celebrations, Play, Purpose, and Profit at Work. But you may ask, what kinds of celebrations? If the above manager wanted to incentivize his people to make more deals or get more products out, then perhaps a motivational program would do. However, If the manager wanted to help his people cope with the inevitable uncertainty that comes with any kind of change, the most appropriate form of celebration should focus on a program that will acknowledge the good things of the past and then move on to the new reality. It's certainly not rah-rah-rah. So here's a smart moves tip. Rapid change is an inevitable part of life in the 21st century. Downsizing, mergers, reorganizations are commonplace events in business today. All require, according to the author, ceremonial recognition, bringing closures to the past and generating hope and optimism for the future. So the next time your department or team or company is experiencing change, low morale and stress, what as a leader can you do? Think celebrations to restore company spirit, reinvigorate employee morale, create community, and ultimately improve productivity and profit. Listeners, is change happening in your workplace? Of course. The reality is every day things change. That's life. That's business. That's the way the world works. So if you have a choice, go with the flow. Or go against the flow or change the flow. What will it be for you? If you want to manage change better, contact me at Marsha, M-A-R-C-I-A, at smartmovescoach.com or call 972-380-9181.
0: You're listening to Marsha Zidle, the Smart Moves Coach, making sure you're on the right track and not getting sidetracked in your drive for high performance and profitability.
1: Listeners, while I talked about celebrations to deal with challenging situations, here's another way. My guest is Lee Taft, who says, quote, We are living in a time of extraordinary acts of public contriction. Think Paula Dean or Lance Armstrong. Yet most of the time... These public expressions of sorrow are without moral content and are indeed what some pundits call non-apology apologies. Having both a law degree and a master's of divinity, that's quite a combination, Lee will show us how authentic apologies can transform a bad situation into one that gains public and customer support and admiration. His topic is, When More Than Sorrow Matters. Welcome, Lee. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Thanks, Marcia. It's great to be here with you.
1: Okay, so... How did a guy like you get to doing what you do? In other words, how does a former trial lawyer now teach and write and consult on apologies in legal context? What's your story?
2: That's, that's, that's a, it's it's, it's, an interesting, it's been an interesting journey. In 1996, I was working as a board-certified trial lawyer in Dallas. I was mostly representing people in medical malpractice litigation. And over the course of my practice, I just kept noticing that people, yes, they wanted to have financial compensation, but they also were seeking moral reparation as well, that that it wasn't just about being paid financially, but they wanted to be acknowledged that when something terrible had happened, that people were accepting responsibility for that terrible outcome. Uh-huh. I was feeling sort of more and more out of step with uh, the Dallas trial lawyers. In the early 70s, you'd go to a Dallas trial lawyers meeting, and people were talking about the law they were changing. And by the 90s, people were talking, were more focused, the lawyers were more focused on, on how much money they were making. Uh-huh. And as I felt out of step, I started being interested in what could, what, how might I more deeply step into seeking a more holistic idea of justice? So I made a choice, and I left my practice, and I went to Harvard Divinity School. And at Harvard, what you have to do is you are required to write a graduate thesis. I made a decision to write my thesis on the role of apology in legal settings. And that thesis, what I did is I was examining how lawyers were using apology in litigation context. And they were using it, but they were using it primarily strategically, uh-huh. What prompted it? Can I can I tell a little story about sure, you know what got me right? Sure,
1: sure. Uh-huh.
2: So, what what made him, what what made me write is I represented a woman in the 1980s whose husband died as a result of medical neglect. She was pregnant at the time of his death. She had three small children, and I was I was her lawyer. And ultimately, it was it was quite clear. It wasn't black and white, but it was close to that. And there was a settlement where all of the policy proceeds were paid. And we had a procedure where we had to be in court all day with all the doctors who were responsible for her husband's care. So we spent all day long with them. And at the end of the day, the, the court did exactly what we had asked the court to do in the settlement. But when we left the courthouse, she was really, really angry. And I thought I missed it. Sometimes people really want their story told. They don't really want to settle. They want the trial. And Mm -hmm. I thought I'd gotten it wrong, and I said, listen, did I miss this? And she said, no, 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 you didn't miss it. She said, I was with all these doctors all day. There's nothing more that I can do, and not one of them said they were sorry. She Mm. said, if only somebody had said they were sorry. She said, I think that I could heal. So there I was when I was in divinity school and having to write my thesis, and she was who I was thinking about. And I started wondering, what does healing mean at law? I understand in the medical context, but for a, for a law client, what, what kind of healing can we hope for? And so that's why I wrote the essay I wrote.
1: Very interesting. And this is taking you into new areas. Um, let's, Let's move on to what you use. When you use the word apology, what do you mean? Because it may mean different things to different people. And I have a feeling that doctors aren't always keen on apologizing. So talk a little bit about that.
2: So when I wrote my essay, when I was thinking of her, I mean, imagine if you're looking at your watch and 12 o'clock is where the harm occurs. And three o'clock is where there's an opportunity to account for that harm. And six o'clock is where forgiveness is a possibility. And nine o'clock is where there's an opportunity for reconciliation. And when we're talking about reconciliation in a business context, we're talking about goodwill. We're talking about retained customer relationships. We're Mm -hmm. talking about maintaining the business. So when I wrote the essay that I wrote in Divinity School, what I thought, I thought what stood between the harm at 12 o'clock and forgiveness at 6 o'clock was apology. That's Mm. what I thought it was. But then what I learned is that there was a movement began in medicine exactly in the healthcare world exactly when my essay came out. And what happened is, is that a study came out of Harvard where they said about 100,000 people die each year because of medical error.
1: Preventable mm-hmm.
2: medical error. The Joint Commission, which is the organization that accredits hospitals, was requiring that because of that study out of Harvard called "Errors Human." They started. The Joint Commission said that hospitals had to tell patients whenever they had what was called an unanticipated outcome in their care, and that mm. was called a, that's called a disclosure. Hospitals then said, well, wait a second. If we couple a disclosure with an apology, then what maybe we'll do is patients maybe will, will give up, we'll just, we'll accept the apology and they won't accept, they won't insist on any kind of financial uh, <laughs> settlement. And that's precisely the kind of trend that started happening. So I wrote another essay and I said, look, and I just want to see if I've got it right. A patient's been injured because of medical mistake." and now because of power and language you've manipulated the patient to relinquish it so what you're doing is you're compounding physical injury with economic injury mm. and so i i think we want to do something more than have an apology we want a more robust movement yes we want the words i'm sorry i'm sorry this happened what i did was wrong but we also want a more robust movement of accountability
1: and I know we have about a minute or so left, and I do want to get into that, um, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to get into that more robust uh, way of doing it. Um, anything else about, you know, how did the how did doctors take to this? Uh, is that something that is being done today, um, where it goes more than just an apology?
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's the, 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 the disclosure movement, this movement of telling a patient, disclosing to a patient when they have had this, what is, it sounds like a euphemism, an unanticipated outcome <laughs> in their care. It does sound euphemistic, but that's precisely what it's called. And there is a robust movement around disclosure that's emerging across the United States today.
1: Okay. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to take a short break. It's uh, on the business edge. Uh, This is Marcia Zidle, the Smart Moves Coach. And when we return, we'll hear Lee Taft talking about why more than sorry matters. And we'll get into what that robust disclosure is and how is it working um, with the hospitals and doctors. So stay tuned.
0: It's just a click away at vapresspass.com. That's vapresspass.com. VA PressPass by Voice America. All access all the time. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Business Edge with Marsha Zidle. To reach Marcia or her guests on today's show, please call 1 866 472 5790. That's one 472 5790 You can also send us an email to Marcia at smartmovescoach.com. Now, back to The Business Edge.
1: Welcome back, listeners. This is Marsha Idol, your Smart Moves Coach. My guest today is Lee Taft, giving insights into when bad things happen, what should you do? or why more than sorry matters. And so when we ended the prior segment, Lee was talking about a robust movement that is taking place. And so, Lee, can you tell um, the listeners more about it?
2: Sure, of course. The... When, you're, when this, this, this movement that I'm talking about, that this thing looking at your watch and at, at 12 o'clock it's harm and at 3 o'clock is, a, is apology and 6 o'clock is forgiveness and 9 o'clock is, is reconciliation, that movement from harm through apology to forgiveness to reconciliation, that's called in academic circles, that's called a reparative sequence. It's a way of how do you repair what has gone wrong.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's, that, 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 this is just a reparative sequence. The, the, the segment of the sequence that we're going to focus on now is the 3 o'clock segment, this apology. So when this movement in medicine started, when the Joint Commission started requiring hospitals to tell patients whenever they had this unanticipated outcome, and the Joint Commission was quite explicit But it wasn't just any unanticipated outcome, that that they also had to tell patients when there was an adverse unanticipated Ah. outcome and including an adverse unanticipated outcome that was the result of medical mistake. They said that fear of litigation was not a reason to step back from the disclosure. You still had to do it. So hospitals, what they did is they started noticing that, well, let's see, when we have disclosure and we couple with it with with an apology, oftentimes patients are relinquishing this otherwise meritorious claim. So that's what made me, prompted me to write another essay to sort of outline what we were talking about is, hey, what's up with this? That we've injured a patient physically. Now we're compounding that injury with economic injury because of the use of language to manipulate Uh the patient. Uh So when I wrote this other essay, I wrote another essay. What I did was I realized that in my original essay I'd gotten it wrong. It really isn't just apology that stands between harm and forgiveness, but sometimes you need something more robust. And remember I went to divinity school, so not surprisingly I'm going to call on religious language and religious concepts. And so I right. was borrowing the religious idea of repentance. Repentance isn't just I'm sorry. Repentance is a deeper movement. It's, it's, it's this movement that um, integrates um, theology and language. So it, it, it integrates the Jewish shuv, the, the Hebrew shuv, and the Greek metanoia. In Judaism, it's, it's capturing the idea of teshuva, teshuvah, T-E-S-H-U-V-A-H, a very specific process on how do you account for harms you've caused. And bringing it in then being integrated into the Christian concept, it's the best example. If you're going to read about it, would be the story of the prodigal son. Oftentimes, and that's a New Testament reading. It's a it's Jesus speaking and educating on how do you mm-hmm. repent. But what happens is is often in the Christian concepts and, and Christian ministers forget that Jesus was Jewish. Forget mm-hmm. that Jesus was teaching how do you repent. And so what it is, is it's this movement of understanding that there is remorse. You feel badly for what you've done. There's some explanation. How is it that I made the mistake that I made? Then there is apology. I will say I am sorry for the wrong that I have done. But it's, um, Desmond Tutu talks about it this way. He says, listen, if I take your pen from you and um, I hold on to the pen and say, oh, I'm sorry for taking your pen, are we done? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not.
2: <laughs> Obviously not. Um, Got to give that pen back. So there's remorse, explanation, apology, I'm sorry, but then there's an accommodation, I give you your pen back. And then, the lesson, then finally, and I think critically, is a concept of what I have called in my work lessons learned.
1: Mm-hmm. I want in healthcare,
2: so when a patient has been harmed because of medical error, of course, I want the hospital to, and the doctor and the nurse to, feel, to, to have remorse. I want there some explanation. This is how what happened happened.
1: Mm-hmm. I want
2: an apology. We're sorry that we have, that this injury has happened to you. And, and the accommodation is we may need to compensate you. We may need to pay you for lost wages. We may need to, um, we may need to pay for you to have further medical care. We may need, there may be other areas of compensation. But then you move into this fifth movement, and that is this lessons learned. What is it that we can learn from what happened Mm -hmm. so that we don't have this happen again? Yes. A a woman has a mammogram. Her doctor, her her, the doctor says, we've done your mammogram, we'll call you if there are any problems. The woman's coming back a year later. The doctor is checking her records. The doctor looks at the records, is checking the patient's chart and goes, oh, my gosh, I didn't get the mammogram report suddenly everything's done electronically now, gets an electronic copy of the report, finds out the report is not good. So now her patient has a year delay. So what you want to do is, yes, you want to go through the other movements of repentance, but critically you want to say, how did this happen? Right. How, did we, how did we miss getting this report? And so there's a lessons learned. So that's why for me, in my, in my, when I'm working with hospitals or other organizations, that when we're in the wake of harm, I, yes, of course I want them to use, to linguistically identify the wrong through the words of apology, through I'm sorry what I did was wrong. But you also want to move more deeply into how are we really going to account for it. I mean, think about Paula Dean.
1: Mm-hmm. Paula
2: Dean was really sorry for having used the N-word, but she never really talked about it in any of her apologies. She just kept saying, you know, I'm sorry, this is causing pain to me. Um, she just kept saying, I'm sorry, but she didn't say what it was that she was going to do differently. What did she learn about her own racism? And what was she going to do? What kind of p- perhaps anti-racist work might she do? So this is why this, this, this more robust movement of, of accountability, what, what I, when people say, so what are you doing? I, teach, I say, well, I guess what I'm doing in a way is I'm teaching secular repentance.
1: And you, you, yes. And I was saying you're also teaching um, um, uh, the, uh, the hospitals, nurses, doctors in terms of better practice, uh, uh, how to deliver uh, medicine better uh, because it's the lessons learned. What, what, did, what went wrong and how can we fix it and how can we not ha- have it happen again? So I think that's what you're also uh, doing as well.
2: So so there's a really important piece of why am I doing that. Yes, you want to improve patient care. I mean, part of what you're learning about disclosure is that disclosure increases patient safety because when you disclose, you reveal systemic Mm -hmm. problems so Mm -hmm. that they are corrected and other patients who are similarly harmed aren't similarly, um, don't experience a similar result. So, but here's what's, what's underneath that. This is really sort of, I think, critical to our conversation. And that is, is that what we're really interrupting is we're having the opportunity to address human suffering.
1: Uh, in the okay.
2: way, in medical mistake, both the patient suffers, but so does the doctor or nurse. Remember, doctors and nurses set out to heal, and when they make a mistake and cause harm, they suffer. They suffer because of their mistakes. When you allow a process to be created so that we learn from our mistakes... What happens is, is for the patient, I learned with the clients that I represented, they, yes, they wanted to be compensated, but they also wanted to know that there would be changes made so someone else who was similarly situated would not be similarly harmed. So what happens with this is that you take suffering that is meaningless. Mm-hmm. You, you cause me harm, nothing changes, nothing, ever, everything's the same. I just suffer. But if because of my loss I know that you have learned and that you change your system and that things are going to be different, then I know that 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 has meaning to me. And so you transform (sighs) meaningless suffering to meaningful, that there's at least something has come out of it so it isn't just this.
1: Well, that is amazing. I mean, I really am amazed how you've put it together and to make it meaningful to the listeners. But, you know, a question comes to my mind is, is your work getting legs in any particular arena? Uh, You know, are people using it? Are they uh, you talk about it, but how is it being used? And we just have a couple of minutes more. So why don't you talk about that a bit?
2: So what's, what's really cool for me about this is remember this started with an essay. Mm-hmm. And it was purely coincidental. I did not when I went off to divinity school think, oh well, in 2014 I will be guiding individuals and organizations through processes of accountability. It didn't, that was not what I was thinking I was doing. It was mm-hmm. coincidental because of what happened with my essay being published at the same time as the Joint Commission study. It was just coincidental. So now what's happened is people will read about me, people will hear what I'm doing, and they themselves will adapt it to industries. So I'll just, so it's, for instance, and it's been adapted in the domestic violence industry. It's been, I've been invited to work in addiction treatment settings. I've been invited to work with businesses where there are disruptions between groups, between insides and outsides group to guide reconciliation and accountability processes. I've worked with cities. I'm working, about 50% of my work is, with, is, is in healthcare. And I think it would be, I think it's interesting if we wanted to sort of pick within those industries, we could talk about particular examples that I think would be of interest to people.
1: Right. Um, so um, I know you were going to, we have about a minute left. Um, can you give a quick example besides healthcare that you have, um, you've worked with?
2: Okay, so a minute left. I'll, here, I'll do my best, and we may have to pick this up. Okay. The city of Dallas, several years ago, the city of Dallas had what were called the fake drug cases. Bad, bad police officer working with a narcotics informant decided to create a scheme, and they planted gypsum on illegal immigrants. They knew that the city of Dallas was no longer testing substances, so they knew that they could, get a, that, that they could plant this gypsum on illegal immigrants and that, that they would be, and then they, they could arrest them. They counted on the fact that these illegal immigrants would be given court-appointed lawyers. And so what happened is, is over a period of over a year, they had oh, over 20 people wrongfully arrested, convicted, and jailed. Mm. ABC, ABC broke the story, and the city attorney in Dallas asked me to help her guide the city through this process, through a process of repentance, We were through a process of accountability, whatever language you want to call it, but Uh full transparency and acknowledging what had gone wrong and then working to compensate the people, change the system so this could never happen again.
1: And on that note, we're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, um, Lee is going to be talking more about this and maybe finish up with a couple of quick little tidbits about his um, experience with the city of Dallas and how, what we can learn from that, what other cities could learn from that. So this is Marsha's Zotto, your Smart Moves Coach. Stay tuned.
0: You can also send us an email to Marsha at smartmovescoach.com. Now back to the business edge.
1: Welcome back to the Business Edge. This is Marcia Ziddle, your Smart Moose Coach. My guest today is Lee Taft, giving insights into when bad things happen, what should you do, or why more than sorry matters. And Lee was just finishing up uh, talking about uh, what happened to the city of Dallas, where we both live a couple years ago um, with uh, a drug bust, and he was called in to a guide... Uh, the city through uh, a difficult situation and bring accountability and acknowledgement and compensation to the situation. So, Lee, um, wh- what you were, what you did in the city of Dallas, and what you've been talking about—is there any re- relevance to what you, what's you know, what's been happening in t- today um, with uh, things going on in Ferguson and uh, you know where we are? How can we look at that? With, with different eyes, different sets of glasses based on what you're talked about.
2: So for me, I think that with, with what's going on with Ferguson, something obviously, there, there's a lot of, there's, it's, it's a complex situation. It's, it's a city that apparently, at least from what I'm reading, and I'm not an expert on Ferguson and I haven't been invited to do anything in Ferguson, but as you're looking in at it, you're looking at a city that is predominantly black. Being policed by a predominantly white police force, Mm -hmm. you're looking at an incidence of what is being um, portrayed through the media as a as an incidence of potential racial violence. At the same time, what we don't know is that it seems to be an evolving story in terms Mm -hmm. of what what happened, how you know who was shooting, where was the shooter, whether the shooter whether the victim's hands were up or down. There's all of that. But what, the, the thing that you want to wonder, and so what you sort of hope for, is that the city has a willingness to be transparent. The situations like in Dallas, the situation in Ferguson, what they really are doing is they're inviting an, an, an organization, and it's an organization whether it is the city of Dallas, whether it is GM, whatever it is, it's an, you're being invited into what are your values. Do you have the value of integrity? Do you have the value of transparency? In my work, what will go on is organizations will invite me in, and when I'm being invited in, I will I will check out what their their values are. Things are online; you can read. And oftentimes, when I'm, for instance, if I'm going into a hospital, you'll see that you'll have values of we value integrity, respect for the patient, Mm -hmm. um, transparency. Stewardship, you see these kinds of, of values. And so those are the an organization's espoused values. And then the question is, Is does the organization have the institutional courage to live into those values and yes. do what is required? Yes. You know, when you, you were talking about in your focus as, as we were getting started today, you were talking about change. Mm-hmm. And so change, when you start looking at organizations that are going to be values-driven... That requires change. Change, to sustain change, to live live into values, requires tremendous courage. Mm
1: And
2: so this is what was so incredibly powerful to me about what happened with the city of Dallas. The city of Dallas, when they made the decision that they did, um, Madeline Johnson was a city attorney then. And Madeline is who hired me to come in. And Madeline said, I want this to be transparent. And so what part of what we did in the process was we presented to the City Council of Dallas a five-point resolution that we were requesting that the City of Dallas pass, the City Council pass, as a means of establishing the transparency of this problem. These cases in Dallas became, ABC built the story, and the the, the news media started referring to this nationally as the fake drug scandal in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So the city was under a spotlight, like Ferguson, Ferguson was under a spotlight. The city was, it was a completely racially charged situation in Dallas, because the the people who were targeted by these, the, this Bronco bus were all Hispanic and were all illegal immigrants. So there was both a status and a racial component to what was going on. So the city council, the, the resolution that we requested the council to pass and which they did pass, included a fault admitting apology. This is when you were asking earlier about distinguishing apologies. You can mm-hmm. have the apology, oh, I'm so sorry, or you could try to have an apology that is sort of behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. The city of Dallas, what, what we what, what the city of Dallas did, and this is tremendous courage, they offered a fault-admitting apology where they acknowledged that things had gone wrong in the city. The city wasn't responsible for the criminal conduct of the narcotics informant or the police officer. Mm -hmm. But the city was responsible civilly because there were policies and procedures that should have been in place, were not in place, and if they had been in place, the scheme would not have been successful.
1: Right. And
2: so in the resolution... The city acknowledged that in the war on drugs, things had gone wrong and the city had, had culpability and offered a fault admitting apology that the city knew could and would be used against it in litigation. They then directed Madeline Johnson as a city attorney to, to expedite the resolution of the cases. They directed the chief of police to change the policies and procedures. They directed the city manager to make sure that this was etched into the city's critical memory, so something like this could never happen again in the city of Dallas. And what happened is after the city council passed this resolution, within just a few months, all of these cases were resolved. And what was about to be a racial rupture, which was incredible racial tension in the city of Dallas, was completely resolved. And so if we want to borrow from that in Ferguson, having Eric Holder come in is great that they're having someone come in. But what they need is they need to make sure that the process is being transparent. They need to make sure that citizens of Ferguson, not just um, and that a racially balanced and um, proportionate so that there is that the balance of the commission is Mm performed so that there is a group of people who represent the demographics of the city are uh, being able to evaluate the process that is going on now to determine what happened. The investigation itself now needs to have integrity. And that's part of what my work helps organizations do, is have integrity in the process of determining what went wrong
1: what a great example of <clears throat> using the city of dallas and how they dealt with quote a bad situation and maybe can give you know look let us look at ferguson with the same i hope people will look at ferguson and those in charge with the same perspective of transparency but it's really time to move on um, because we have a couple of other questions and you know um, i want to bring it back to lawyers um, and and you know you talked about this uh this process what does what do lawyers think about apology and then i have a quick story too to tell tell the uh, the listeners so you know what's lawyers reaction to this do you want to start with your story, or do you want me to... Okay, uh, I will I- start with my story. Um, <clears throat> we have just about three, four minutes. Uh, uh, several years ago, my uh, 17-year-old daughter was in an automobile accident. It was pretty severe. There, was, there were three in her car and three in another car, and um, all six were injured, um, and one had, uh, w- one had died. And it was in the other car. It was being driven by a um, 20-year-old with his twin brothers. And he hydroplaned into my daughter's car, and they careened into a mountain, and one of his brothers died. Um, of course there was a lot of you can imagine now we're dealing with insurance, we're dealing with police uh, we're dealing with the medical community and now comes the lawyer and we hired a lawyer and one of the, and we knew him personally and one of the things we said to him was because uh, we had read and made the newspaper so we had read that there was going to be a wake for this 13 year old, a twin brother who died. And I said to the lawyer, uh, we want to go. We want to pay our respects. And the lawyer says, do not go. Um, And I said, we want to go. And finally, finally, he saw that both my husband and I were adamant and that um, he gave us one bit of advice. If you go, do not, do not say anything about the accident. We went, we paid our respects and we left. Um, And it made us feel better even though my daughter was not, um, was not responsible for the accident, uh, I just felt there was a certain amount of, of showing respect and accountability. So that's my story. Okay, respond to that.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's an important story. Um, and it, So it, it's interesting that, that you felt better, but you also wonder how did the family or the deceased feel. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that they found um, a movement of respect. In, in what you did, and that they, 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 at some point, that you're acknowledging what happened without having to engage in the sort of the, the dynamic of establishing fault. Mm-hmm. Your story is interesting, Marsha, because uh, in the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a legislative movement that has evolved in the United States over the past, oh, I guess 15 years on apology. In 1987, a Massachusetts legislator's, so a state legislator's daughter, was killed um, in, by a, in a vehicular incident. The legislator was outraged that the the driver of the vehicle never came and apologized to his family for his daughter's death. Mm-hmm. He was he was told that the reason that no that the driver did not apologize and did not come to him was because of the lawyers. Um, warning of, of the fact that an apology can also become a legal admission.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, if I say I'm sorry, I ran the red light; it was all my fault. There is an apology in there, but there's also what, at law, is considered an evidentiary admission. So, the legislature, as soon as he retired from the legislature, his first act of business was to persuade another legislature to pass the first apology statute in the United States, and. That that apology statute says that in Massachusetts, and now in several other states, you can communicate an expression of sympathy, an expression of sorrow, an expression of benevolence, and that cannot be used in evidence against you as proof of misconduct. Mm. But if you move from, I'm sorry for your loss, I'm sorry for your suffering, and if you move from, I'm sorry you were suffering, I ran the red light, it was all my fault, the Massachusetts statute no longer protects you.
1: Right, and right.
2: So that's, there's this legislative movement now around it, that had that been in existence at the time of your daughter's experience, your lawyer's advice, I hope, might have been different. But we can talk more about lawyers in this as
1: time permits. Well, we are at the end of uh, the uh, segment, and uh, when we come back, um, um, Lee Taff will give us a couple of more hints about uh, this very fascinating topic, and um, and how to contact him. Because I'm sure you're going to have questions for him. So stay tuned.
0: There's a saying. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Business Edge with Marsha Zidle. To reach Marsha or her guests on today's show, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send us an email to Marsha at smartmovescoach.com. Now back to the business edge.
1: Welcome back, listeners. This is Marcia Idol your Smart Moves Coach, and my guest today is Lee Taft, and he has been giving us tremendous insights into when bad things happen to us, what should we do or why more than sorry matters. And so, Lee, since this is the last segment, I'd like to end with uh, what are some key ideas that you want the listeners to remember and then how to contact you. So, what do I want? To t- a couple, a couple of those key ideas.
2: Well, a couple of ideas is that I, I, I guess I, I want people to be thinking about in their businesses that things will go wrong. We mm-hmm. not, we don't want things to go wrong. For instance, in the healthcare environment, none of us as a patient want to enter the hospital thinking that something can go wrong. But at the same time, things can go wrong. And so, what we want to, when we're running businesses, is that we want to have a plan in place. We want to make sure that we are thoughtful about the fact that. When things go wrong, we don't want to be in the moment of that. When something has happened, it creates crisis. And we don't want to be creating a crisis plan in the midst of a crisis. It's sort of like trying to learn how to sail in a storm. That's just not what you want to be doing. Mm -hmm. So you also want to make sure that you have to decide who are you. Who are you going to be in the wake of mistake? What do your business values say? And are you willing to act? If you say that we're about transparency and integrity, then are you willing to act in that way? This is a time where sometimes leadership can get crosswise with lawyers. Mm. I, was at a, I was doing a lecture a few weeks ago, and, and out of the audience came, a, a CEO was saying, so this is what I think. This is what my company stands for. But our lawyers said this, and so we are going to follow our lawyers' advice. And what I want to suggest is that lawyers' responsibility is to give advice, but the integrity of the company, how you are going to behave, is dependent on who you are and the fact that as a corporate leader, you live into who you say you are. You want to be smart. You don't want to accept responsibility prematurely. You want Mm -hmm. to have a plan in place that says, how will we investigate what happened? How How will we determine If the outcome was a result of mistake, or if it is simply an outcome that can happen but was not anticipated or the result of anybody's mistake, how will we communicate? No matter what, in the wake of something having gone wrong, communication is is absolutely essential. And what you want to do is you want to deaccelerate false admitting statements. You don't want to be acknowledging fault before you have thoroughly investigated Mm -hmm. what's going on, because once you admit fault, you're married to it. So you want to accelerate fault-admitting conversations. But my hope is, with the people that I work with, is that I want them to have the courage that after investigation, if it determines that there was fault, that there is an acceptance of fault and a stepping into the full movement of accountability, the robust movement that will invite forgiveness and reconciliation. My name is Lee Taft. My website is um, taftsolutions.com. I have an additional website called reparativemediations.com. There's that word reparative again.
1: Can so, you spell that for the uh, listeners so they get it right?
2: R-E-P and Paul, A-R-A-T-I-V-E, uh, mediations.com.
1: Well, great. Thank you so much, Lee. Uh, As I said, it was a fascinating conversation. There was so much that you, uh, so much great information. And as Lee and I were talking during the break, I'm going to have him back um, because I'm sure he has much more to say and and we can go even further. But let's move on to next week's program, which is Married Entrepreneurs Make a Perfect Pair. Business partners often joke that they're married to one another. What happens when you actually are married to your business partner? Husband and wife, Jeremy and Leela Stewart, launched flip-flop brand Harry Mari two years ago. They knew that combining home life and work life could be fraught with landmines. But just as there are horror stories, there are also successful couples who have built household brands together. Through some missteps, the stewards learn to navigate the challenges of working as husband and wife entrepreneurs and find balance between their personal and professional lives. Tune in Wednesday, August 27th at 11 Pacific, 2 Eastern on the Business Channel. Now, here's a smart move tip for the coming week. During times of change, there is never too much communication. When you're on an airplane and encounters turbulence, you want to know what's happening. Not knowing makes you nervous. Well, employees also want to know what's going on, especially if things are changing fast and furious. If they don't understand, their anxiety mounts, trust declines, and rumor flies. So don't hide from change. Go with it and help your people live and work well in it. Listeners, do you want to know more about how to communicate change so that people will buy into it rather than resist it? Contact me at 972-380-9181 or Marcia, M-A-R-C-I-A, at smartmovescoach.com. I'll end with my favorite quote. There are three kinds of people in this world, those who make it happen, those who let it happen, and those who ask What happened? Which one are you? If you're highly motivated to make it happen, let me help you make it happen. Let me show you how. Thank you for listening to The Business Edge with Marcia Zadl, your Smart Moves executive coach and speaker, helping entrepreneurs and business leaders take their company firm or practice to that next level with less stress and more success. In other words, how to take the growing pains out of growth. Innovate, improve, ignite, or die. Make smart moves. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to The Business Edge with Marcia Zeidel. Please join us again next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And enjoy taking your business to the next level.